Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I'm Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I design tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. I am Craig Campbell. I own Nerdburger Games, and I make a bunch of RPGs as well. Um, and uh, we are here with our guest. Hi, Pam. Hi, uh, I'm Pam Punzalan. A lot of you guys might know me as a dovetailer. I do game design, editing, cultural consultancy, sensitivity reading. I show up on podcasts and streams at random, and I also do, I guess, community building. I am from the Philippines, but um, now here in Canada for a indefinitely long period of time. Yeah, and recurring guest on our podcast. <laughs> I think you're our, our, our guest who's been on the most <laughs> so thanks for coming back apparently we haven't scared you off yet oh absolutely not <laughs> oh. <laughs> and we have an interesting topic today i i'm very i'm very interested in getting into it craig you want to boost us into it uh yeah i this is going to be one that i might find myself just kind of asking a lot of questions um and playing the interested outsider because um, I love my dice. I love having playing in dice where you know, playing in games where there's a lot of dice being rolled. I love uh, designing games where there are dice involved. But we're going to talk about when uh, there aren't so many dice, or maybe when there aren't any dice on the table at all. So to start with, GMing games um, where there are you know where, where you just end up not rolling dice. Um, and that might be games we might speak to. I think there's some sh overlap between games that specifically don't use dice or other randomizers, um, as well as just like games where dice or randomizers are part of it. But you end up with a session where there's just not any of that going on because of how the session goes um, and things you can keep in mind as a GM to facilitate that because the, the you know, combat breaks out. Everybody roll dice like that's That's a great fallback to uh to keep you know things interesting and entertaining um and when the dice aren't rolling there's a little more uh you know like the focus changes and the the types of things you do change yeah pam i'm curious about why you decided to choose this topic well um a lot of it has to do with the fact that the first games that i ever homebrewed for and played were world of darkness games and like in my opinion world of darkness and like that side of it world world of darkness chronicle of darkness and like uh, the white wolf paradox stuff they occupy a very strange space because they try to mechanize things but they also try to be narrative in their words and at times the system itself is rather like if you were to talk about that scary thing that people call game balance the system itself is not that balanced so what ends up happening when you're with uh your table at least in my experience is that you end up shucking the dice away anyway because they get in the way so as a gm i learned a lot how to just tell people okay this is a session which is talky no you don't actually need your social roles because it's more impressive if we right it's more important that we all hash it out at the table so you take a lot of out of character pauses and go okay as a character what's her motivation as a player what do you want to have happen here i, I used to do a practice where before any 
risky or narratively important session between my players and or NPCs, we take about 30 minutes to an hour to sit down and make a very rough plan of how we want the conversation to go. And that moved things from the, excuse my language, fuck around and find out using dice <laughs> to, uh, to okay, no, let, let's adjust expectations so that everybody remains friends and no one feels like their, their moment was taken from them. So uh, that, that's kind of where I was thinking. And then, um, of course, I designed primarily for Powered by the Apocalypse and for, for Forge in the Dark. And that has minimal dice rolls as well, because a lot of it is, but how do you interpret it? What would you like to happen here? Uh, how do you, like, what do you do? That famous question that, that a lot of people talk about when it comes to PTBA. Uh, so I'm, I'm far less used to rolling dice than I let on. This is not to say that I don't like playing games that, that are um, crunchy. Like, I love Mothership. Mothership has a lot of that, where dice will make or break anything, including your character and your further participation in the session. Uh, but <laughs> that's kind of how I grew up as a GM, and I think that bled into into my design. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I feel like that's a lot different than what most role playing gamers are used to. We're we're also used to like even a specific type of dice rolling system. <laughs> so many of us are used to a a d twenty roll a d twenty add a modifier does it hit a certain threshold and make mm -hmm. you succeed? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I agree with you. That can be really narratively dissatisfying sometimes. Like you, you, you put in so much effort to, to setting something up, setting yep. the stage, yeah. describing it. And then you roll a one because that's how a randomizer works is that it's up to chance. And that's not really, that's not really how the world works. Yeah, and I feel like um, this is just my opinion, of course, but um, in a video game, that's okay, right? A randomizer is totally fine in a video game because you could go back to your save point, try again, and the outcome will be the same. In a role-playing game, you are the computer. So everything does not end up the same. Your frustration levels are not proportional to how it would be in a video game. You don't get to walk away and presume that the scene will play out exactly the way you need it to, that characters will do exactly what you what you want them to. Uh, so um, I know that some people joke around a lot about like being slaves to the dice. The way that I prefer to look at it is... Um, Sure, a dice roll can be negotiable, and that's the beauty of tabletop. But if it can be negotiable, then why'd you put it there in the first place? Should it not just be a tool to make things intriguing or not intriguing, and then you ditch them as needed because you don't always need a hammer to put that nail in? Sometimes you don't even have to put the nail into the wall. That's, that's how I view it anyway. So what, what do we do as GMs to make sure that we are keeping it narratively interesting, even when dice aren't, aren't the thing that's doing it for us? Like how do we how do we GM so we still have our our chance of failure, which is what really is the spice of any of any role playing game? Ask ask your players a lot of questions. Like what, locate their motivations. What would they like to happen? Uh, do they want? Do you as a GM feel like this win is necessary? Because at the end of the day, if you don't walk away happy from the game, if you don't if you didn't have fun, or if people ended up not feeling safe, or if it did not feel proportionate to their efforts that they put in to be at your table to make those characters to make the scene happen with you, then it wasn't worth it. That that role was just 
not worth it. Uh, so that that a lot of asking and finding alternative uses for it. Um, one thing that a lot of my my wad players before loved was I'd ask them, okay, I know that you guys want to roll your dice because you just bought them and they're pretty. So well, do you want this the 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 circumstances of this rule to determine the outcome or not? Do you just want to roll it because you want to have fun and then adjust on the fly? Right. Um, then the the other thing there is I lost my train of thought because there's like a vacuum going <laughs> off in the background. But like oh. the, the 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 important thing is to just make sure that at the end of it, even if your character, your player's character is not the start, that the player still felt like they had a choice. Uh, so I think it helps to have um, part of the conversation too to be um, like when there's dice, everybody understands implicitly or even explicitly that there's going to be failure. You're, sometimes the dice aren't, aren't going to go your way. And mm -hmm. that when there's not going to be dice, that doesn't mean that the GM is just going to say, okay, you succeed. Okay, you succeed. Okay, you succeed. The GM is going to invoke complications. The GM is going to have it just, you might try something. And then if it's their very narrative that you're dealing with, they might just say, okay, that, that doesn't work. Like, just like in my head, I think there's a better, more interesting way um, for the story to move forward. So I'm going to have you fail um provide you with maybe opportunities ideas like yeah. you know suggestions about like that doesn't work but you notice yeah. this or that doesn't work and this other person comes in and offers this information or this thing happens so that you can uh, it becomes almost like verbal puzzle solving um, yeah yeah I, with, with the with the gm yeah. as the puzzle master where the the, the the gm is thinking well okay they need to get this door open they're going to try to kick it down okay well no they're going to try to lock, pick the locks. Well, no. And it's not because those things wouldn't work. It's because I find that personally as the GM narratively uninteresting. Well, we're going to pop the hinges out or we're going to shrink it with our spell or, you know, like there's a lot of different ways to get that door open. Um, and, and, the, and those have better, um, uh, there's other things that become more interesting thing about that. Because if you, if you bash the door down, okay, it's probably busted. If you pick the pick the lock okay well you can probably just lock the door again but if you shrink the door that doorway's open and so when you come <laughs> back when you come running back through here with the big bad hot on your tail you don't have a door you, you don't have a door <laughs> yeah. because it's yeah. a more interest it's a more interesting um, possibility and so like i i find myself in a position where like is when the when the when the, the choice is made when the person describes doing this um and and I know that I like rolling dice, but there are times when I'm playing games where, um, where I, you know, like there's also, you know, the question of like, don't roll the dice unless it really like really matters. Like, so you can kind mm -hmm. of like not roll dice sometimes when you can you have this verbal puzzle that you go through. Um, but you know, give them, give the players the opportunity to try other things to do with things. Don't have it be like make or break just because they said I do this and you say, nope, it didn't work. And the whole room blows up. Um, that's no good. Um, yes, especially since like absolute failure at a tabletop is rarely interesting like because of the amount of frustration that'll come up from it. And also you kind of just end up at an impasse. It's that whole old uh, 
that old D&D meme of, okay, I need to, I need to open the door to get the story going. And then you roll five ones, right? Like, why did you have to roll the dice anyway? You're, you're literally a level 20 character who has fought a God and you can't open a door. Right. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's that issue, right? You have to provide, as Craig said, options and you have to give a gradient of, or a spectrum, I guess, of failure and success. I, I've been playtesting that with one of the games that I've been trying to work on since last year, where um, the implicit design of it is there will never truly be a full failure, um, even if your character dies in the attempt, because you will end up a ghost that's bolted into the system. You can still interact. Uh, but the, the point is, yes, you missed that shot as a sniper and that was exceedingly important but you still clipped the guy it still created a lot of noise and now the whole town knows that there's a problem and that's exactly what you needed to happen a gradient of of success a spectrum of failure and you always push the narrative forward and sometimes as a gm it falls upon you to think about those options in advance like uh, the, there's nothing more stressful than a player who's already freaking out about what's happening to their table to have a GM in their face going, so what do you do? And you're not even offering them any kind of option there or no information whatsoever. Like playing is also a skill uh, as is GMing. So you build it together through a constant process of collaboration and conversation. I, I think that spot on that, like the the spectrum of failure and success, yeah. it's 100% true that there, like the absolute failure does suck. It sucks like almost every time. Like, I think that there are some places where it might be appropriate, but I also yeah. think that absolute success is hardly ever narratively interesting either. Yeah. Like Craig said, like what, what you said with the shrinking yeah. door, like the, you're successful, you shrank the door, yes. But there are consequences down the line. And Pam, you hinted at this. There's there's a little bit more of a cognitive load as the GM in this case, because the G, the dice are now no longer making the decision for you. You do have to come up with some some ways to make it interesting as like, you know, as the GM playing the traditional role of, of role playing the world as, as itself. So if you are going to give them that success, well, what new challenge does that open up? What complication does this get started? And the same thing can happen with failure. And, you know, if you're a GM, you can always just ask your players, don't be shy about it. Uh, this, this, this table should not be adversarial. Now, okay, if that's your play style, if you wanted to make a PvP game, don't let this mean Pam girl stop you. Go right <laughs> ahead, right? Like, you do you. Like, stay, I'll stay in your lane, you stay in mine, right? But in this, if, since this is our this, the discussion today, you can always ask your players, like, I'm a little lost. How do you guys think we should make this go down? You don't even have to spoil them about your story. You could say, I want to make this interesting for you, but I'm running blank right now. So let's talk about it. What fun shenanigans can we pull out of what just happened because of this role? And that becomes a fun exercise too. Mm-hmm. Two, two things. First of all, I want Mean Pam Girl to be a Twitter account <laughs> um, where Mean Pam um, answers your questions. Um, second, um, the, 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 the added effect of like if you if somebody if the player offers up like, well, I picked the lock, the simple answer um, and you and you say no, but and you, you know, they, they find their way to something more interesting is that it, w- it won't take terribly long. The players will latch onto the idea of like come up with something 
narr- narratively interesting from the get-go. Don't make the GM kind of push you in that direction. And then you'll have the moments where the, you know, you present a challenge that the players need to overcome and somebody will, and everybody kind of think about it and they'll talk with each other. And then somebody will suggest an idea that everybody goes, whoa, yeah. that's spectacular. <laughs> yeah. And everybody has a great moment where somebody just comes up with this thing rather than you having to quote unquote, handhold them to the more interesting answer. And sometimes um, and then, the players will be more have, adversarial than you will. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And sometimes like you'll, you'll, it'll develop into a game of like one ups, like friendly one upsmanship. Like they'll be looking yeah. to be like, who can come up with the weirdest way to deal with this problem. Um, and, uh, and they, they might, that, that can happen too. Sometimes the players will take it full, full circle. They'll, they'll <laughs> offer up something that is so bizarre and so out there that you just like, I like the idea, but wow, that's like, that's, no, <laughs> we gotta like, like maybe something rein it back in just a little bit, um, or find some <laughs> find some you know uh, some tweaked version of that. that so tweaked version. It might it might yeah. get like really out there because that's one of the things that you run into. You know, like what they talk about with dice is like, you know, can I swim up a waterfall? Well, if if my my if my rule system mean says that there's always a chance of success, then yes, there's a chance I can swim up a waterfall, um, but when there's no dice, there's always the possibility that I can suggest swimming up a waterfall. <laughs> and the GM does have to put some sort of limits on like how outlandish and wild things are going to get. And then, you know, and that starts to develop a, an understanding between the GM and the players of like this, here's the, here's the band where cool, you know, the, the idea is cool and interesting enough. And it's not so out there that it kind of kills momentum or, you know, destroys the immersion of the game or, makes the game makes the game too gonzo you know makes the game not feel like the game anymore yeah um yeah so uh, it's 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 a it's a trade-off it's a back and forth i think it would require a pretty robust session zero where people are agreeing on like yeah if this is the kind of game that we're going to play with either minimal or no dice dice rolls um maybe it's already built into the system which of course we'll talk about later designing games like this but um like what are our limits how goofy are we allowing ourselves to get how are we going to react when you think the gm made a, a call or another player if you're playing even a gm list game with no dice mm-hmm. um yeah. how are you going to react or how are we going to handle handle conflict when there's a disagreement about what happens i think those are all great things to bring up within that session zero and making sure everyone's on the same page because i think you're not going to run into as many problems like Oh yeah, well, Craig keeps trying to swim up waterfalls. I don't know what's going on with that. If you are all playing at a table where we've already agreed, we're not going to try to do some of this weird, goofy stuff. But yeah, maybe you are. I don't it's, know. It's, it's it's nicer to like a robust session zero and constant follow ups. Like, yeah, don't don't be shy to take the time to kind of just sit down and go. Alrighty, this is our old chat. This is our old cheat sheet of session zero before. Has anything changed? Are we adding anything else? How happy are you guys with the story? Even the development of themes, aesthetic, and player actions and GM actions are things that you really do have to like constantly session zero. Like, are you okay with us swinging that away or you want to go this way again? Uh, there was a session of Weapon of the Gods. It's a really archaic game for Wuxia stuff that I used to play, where uh, midway through the campaign, 
um, me and a bunch of the other players noticed that our GM, and this was good intent, of course, was getting super excited about the the ideas that he had, such that it became the the bad habit of I'm gonna put you guys in a cart as players and cart you to the next plot point. So all you get to do is maybe roll a few dice and say a cool line, and that's it. Because I gotta get you to the next plot point, right? And that was sad because it started out as a jokey game. Like all of us were literally playing characters whose so-called Chinese names were puns of our real situation, right? <laughs> At the time, for example, uh, I had no job, so my character's name was No Pay. Uh, so oh. that that sort of thing, right? Sure. Stupid, dumb, fun, <laughs> right? Um, and it and yet even with the punny names and the little like witty bits that we put in with me and the rest of my phil chinese friends um we we developed characters that had a surprising amount of nuance and we wanted to see what it was like to be misfits of our own regard um in a society that does not like misfits or change. <laughs> so when when it hit the point where we could not play that out and the agency was gone from a story of found family, it stopped being fun. So we needed a mid-session zero to kind of just like hold our GM's face and go like, friend, we love you, but the, you're not writing a movie, okay? Mm. <laughs> this, is, this is the tabletop game. If you want to write a script and use our characters, go ahead but at this table we all should get a say uh and that 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 once again establishes the importance of 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 multiple session zeros regardless of how many stupid people on the internet like to say my table's not a safe space right well that that's cute honey but uh I don't play that way. <laughs> your, your table's not a safe space and it's not a fun space either. Cause <laughs> those two things tend to be a little linked, you know, when everyone's, yeah, yeah. when everyone's being respected. Oh gosh. How, how risky. <laughs> Damn it, Pam. Like we, we have to game together sometime. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I'm on the right time zone for it. If yeah, you no kidding. Drag me out of ERZ. Sure. I got you. <laughs> Maybe I'll come up to breakout. I've thought about it one of these years. Yeah. Well, speaking of session zeros, one thing I can imagine, even if you're playing a game that does have a lot of like that has dice rolls in it, but you want to like start taking some of that out as much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. during that, during those session zeros and those communication times, because people like to talk about their characters and their character motivations during those times, taking some of those complication hints that players will inevitably drop for you and putting them in a little bag for later. So when they do something absolutely either really cool or really stupid, you can pull <laughs> out one of those complications. Like, um, oh, you, you're this character that's in your backstory is going to show up as your yeah. complication <laughs> now. And that could be a really good signal point to, to just add, a, add that spice in there, add that into the game without it having to be, you roll, it's a success or a failure. Mm-hmm. You're adding a narrative complication instead of a, a mechanical one, which is what a dice roll will usually do. Uh, I, I think those are really fun. And it also gives you as the GM more of a guideline, more of like those handrails, instead of just constantly having to think on your feet, which can be really exhausting as a GM. <laughs> think of a new thing, do it right. again, do it a hundred more times. Right? So exhausting. <laughs> but having a list, like even a literal list, uh, yeah. that can help a lot. I do that a lot. Like, oh, I know at some point I'm going to bring in 
the person's evil twin brother that they mentioned, <laughs> like whatever it is, whatever it is, I'm going to bring that in eventually. And now I can when I'm at a lost, a loss. Yeah, the if we're going to move a bit into how to design for it, like uh, this is also a, self, a shameless self-plug, but one of the things that I was most proud of with designing Nabithem's End is my partner and I love the idea that because you were playing agents who are basically the X-Files except in a, in a Magitech universe, you're always fighting against the apocalypse, there will always be a fallout. Somebody is going to be unhappy with you, whether it's the world at large because it wants to die or it's your government that doesn't trust you tower agents because you're out of jurisdiction. So I built a table, a randomizer, a hundred entries of mm. threads. And <laughs> the, the nice thing with that is that it's optional, but it is always there. And we baked it further into the system by putting it into our moves. A possible consequence of not rolling well is that you may gain a thread. You can also choose to take a thread anytime. You may also resolve a thread, but they are always there. So you build a constant bank of random ideas. Like your ex will show up, by the way, she's a monster now. <laughs> or, oh yeah, you saved that kid. That's wonderful. But his political father actually wanted him to die. So now the mayor hates you and his police are gonna be at your tower. So each one was about a sentence long and it helped their players because like at the end of it would be like, okay, guys, fallout time. How many threads did you collect? So we'd start counting it like you got three, you got five, I got one. Let's fuck around and find out. And then the moment people would roll, they'd be like, oh, this is spicy. Yeah, I totally want my ex-lover that I didn't know that I had showing up. Right. <laughs> like, so it, it became a cute exercise and the constant um, possibility of being able to resolve that, to redeem some characters, to change the world also came up because some of those threads were about escalation or de-escalation. A mission that you thought you finished in session one is going to come back worse in session 20. So it, that, that was a design way that we baked it in. The, the current system I'm playtesting has a system that I call wagers directly inspired by um, belonging outside belonging. So the combat system itself is exceedingly crunchy. It's so crunchy, I want to completely change it because I'm no longer happy with it. But the point is, it was meant to kill you as, as characters. And that was why you had to rely on the wagers. And each playbook has specific wagers that are tied to their aesthetic. If you're a meat man, which means that you're basically the bruiser, you'll have a wager, uh, a weak wager that you can take where you broke something that you shouldn't have broken. Or the, the frightening amount of power and strength that you wielded at this moment scared a loved one. Uh, then we also have a playbook called a janitor, where you're the cleanup guy. Uh, one of the weak wagers that you can play that'll gain you the, the, the hold, which is basically token currency for further cool stuff, right? Uh, one of the wagers you can have is... Okay, sure, you got what you wanted, but a very nasty skeleton came out of your stomach, uh, came out of your closet, and their target isn't you. <laughs> right, so that, that's how I designed it, yeah. so that it's always interesting. You're making a, a system of betting, like how far can you go before the breakpoint where you will have to go into an exceedingly difficult situation, which requires dice rolls in a system that may get your character killed. But don't worry, the system also means that if you die, you can turn into a ghost, which means you're just haunting everybody. And as a player, you can kind of like push the door for your friends while they still haven't figured out how to resurrect you. So yeah. that's that's my like design thing when it comes to uh, minimizing roles. 
as a GM, I can imagine how helpful like having a list of complications is. Um, and as as a designer, like we're popping into the design aspect here. As a designer, you are like your job is to try to help the GM and help the players role play and have fun. Um, I know in Clockwork Dominion, one of the mechanics is if you pull a Doom card from the deck, um, the the Pontus, which is like the chaos of the world, will erupt and something bad will happen. Oh, something no. will happen, <laughs> and you can either as the as the GM come up with something narrative, like for example, it starts raining blood, or yeah, you know, a monster pops out. Oh, that's um, not good. <laughs> right. Like- yeah like biblical (laughs) biblical stuff because the game is all based on like biblical stuff um there's also a list in the book for some ideas yeah it's great that you mentioned that too because uh, since craig mentioned limits earlier when you design that way you're already putting limits and a subtle way of showing both players and gms this is the kind of game that we are playing so this kind of aesthetic, these kinds of themes, yes. these sorts of actions are encouraged for the biggest payoff. I'm not your mom. I'm not going to tell you you can't do a comedic game in this horrible, biblically inspired, apocalyptic world. You can, but it may not be the game for you. Like, I'm not going to stop you. But if you don't have fun, you still paid $15 for my game. You can't take it back. <laughs> right? Like, it's no refunds. <laughs> no refunds. I'm sorry. You know, I built this game. You decided to rebel to go against the grain not my problem anymore these are the limits and this is how i designed it for maximum fun for people who wanted to play this kind of game yeah i i in uh the means of magic which is my upcoming game uh Uh we there are roles but you're not really rolling to be successful in your action because alex and i said we want to make a game where when you do something it happens when you swing a sword you, you swing the sword you don't just fail to do that um, but you're you're rolling up to a point to a trigger moment where either your stress breaks and you, per, as the player, it's your job now to role play your stress break, like the narrative thing that you do when you are overwhelmed and stressed out. Ooh, and you're bringing okay. in your yeah. character, yeah, yeah. And yeah. if you choose not to do that, then the GM, then the world basically responds to that, and and a complication will happen, or sometimes both. Um, so it's a way to kind of put that onus on the player too, instead of the GM, allowing them to incorporate some of their character attributes. Um, and also at the same time, the GM a, being able to add in some of those world building aspects as well when it is appropriate, but not always having to be the one to do it. Um, and I, I liked it. Um, it's very, it's like dread without, a Jenga tower in that way. Oh, okay, cool. Like in dread, you are successful until the Jenga tower falls and then you die. Uh, so it's kind of like that, except you don't die when the Jenga tower falls. Um, and what I think the game does in that way without a dice roll provides a complication beyond just you fail to do the thing. Um, and it really encourages people uh, to to role play their character and role mm-hmm. play, um, which is the whole point of the game. You're trying to get people to to make a cool story and to play characters that they yeah. like. Uh, I, I and the more power you can give to the GM, I like that you mentioned that the the lists are a way to include the world building straight into the mechanics, melding those two right into each other. It feels it like just, we. Oh, go oh. ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, like, uh, there's just so many ways you can do it. You could have a table. You could put it into your backgrounds. You could put it into your playbook. You could put it into your XP triggers at the end of the day. There's just so many ways that you can oh, yeah. put it in. Um, and you could even do, you could even mechanize quirks if you want to. Some tables, uh, some games as designed have a quirk. And that's more of like a, I guess, a script tell since you're the one playing the character. So you got to have a cheat sheet on how you want to stay in character. But you could also systematize that too. Your quirk could actually get people in trouble uh, if you, if you want to tie something to it. So. Yeah, I think we we have uh, we have started to dip our we toes have. into design. We have um, on yeah. this topic. So <laughs> like yeah, ten minutes ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's call all of that um, both the last ten minutes both topics, and we'll yes. call this kind of the shift into yeah designing games <laughs> um, with with uh, with no dice slash randomizers or with very little of that sort of thing. Um, and you both gave an example, so I want to give an example because I actually have designed a game that doesn't involve dice. Um, and it's just like a it's a little short game um it's it if you buy the four little games booklet um it's oh, one of the games okay. in there um it's called plane plane crash confidential or kind of not confidential it's called plane crash confessional um and it's inspired by an episode of seinfeld where you're on basically everybody who's playing there's no gm everybody who's playing is on a plane the pilot comes on and says the plane's going down make peace with whatever higher power you believe in, because this is it. And everybody starts unloading all of their embarrassing stories or their like <laughs> terrible things that they've done. Um, and the game just uses, it has, there's a, in, in, in the booklet, there's a series of five by five grids and the center grid, the center square is open. That's where you start. Uh -huh. um, and then every other square has like a word or a phrase that's a prompt. And the first person to go start telling their story picks you know, starts in the center of the grid and they pick up, pick one of the four prompts that's above, below, or to the left, or to the right. And they have to tell, you know, an embarrassing story, a fake embarrassing story, or, or a description of like some terrible thing that they did um, to try to make peace um, using that prompt. And then they pass that off, that, that grid off to the next person. The person then starts with that prompt and they have to pick one next to um, one of the prompts next to it. And you keep going until you get to the point where nobody has a choice. Like there'll be a point where you kind of get to the outside of the edge and all the squares right around you have been used. And that's the point where the pilot comes back on and says, Hey, we've managed to level everything out. Everybody's <laughs> going to be fine. <laughs> and you all look at each other very uncomfortably. Um, and uh, so it, it, it was just building, you know, this is one of those things where like, it's, it's a very specific role-playing game, very specific circumstance that you're in, but it's intended to just be like, you know, a narrative um, structure for this, particular kind of story with prompts so that you don't have to come up with anything and it and it gives you an end point mm -hmm. um it allows the game to wrap at the, a certain point there's a lot of larps that are like that like i think those kinds of games have a lot more in common with larps than with a traditional role-playing game in a very good way um because you could imagine if it were a larp you know you'd actually be sitting and acting it all out this is just you're taking that element away and you're making it more of a you know, a conversation with everybody, um, which I love that play style. Uh, there's a game um, called, oh, it's a Guy Fieri game. And why can't I remember the name of it? I've talked about it before on this podcast, but the idea is you're all both, you're, you're high schoolers, it's your prom night, and you have just learned that the sun needs to be kickstarted. So you go off into a, into a spaceship on prom night. So you have all these high school problems, right? 
Um, but also one of the characters is Guy Fieri, and he's on the plane along with his five alarm chili, which is wrecking havoc on your spaceship. Uh, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> and every every playbook has a like a, a list of lines that you have to say at some point. So Guy Fieri's lines are all like, welcome to Flavortown and stuff like that. Right, right, and right. then all the high school lines are like all full of like high school teen drama slash space <laughs> stuff. Um, and you have links between the characters. And the idea is by the end of the game, you're supposed to have read all of your lines. Mm-hmm. And when you do, your character dies. Like something bad happens, like you're out of the game, either dies or is taken out of the game somehow. Um, so you can play all sorts of games like this. It has a really goofy element because of Guy Fieri um, and the five alarm chili that has become sentient trying to take over the ship. Uh, <laughs> it's it's very fun. Oh gosh, I'm gonna have to look up the name of the game. Um, but it's it's another way to allow character building and, and world building very much in the same way as playing. Cla- pra- Playing Crash Confessional. Gosh, that is hard to say, Craig. You always want to say confidential, even <laughs> yes. though it's on game. Yeah. Um, it, but there's no randomizers at all. And it works. The game still works. You don't need to include, like, do you fail or do you succeed? Mm-hmm. And I think what those two games have in common is that you're you're heading to a specific endpoint. There's a very clear gameplay loop. That is happening. And I think that you need that for sure if you're designing a game with no randomizers. I'm gonna look up the name of this game. So much. Yeah, you do you do kind of have to know where the where how to how to determine the story ends if you're not relying on like killing the big bad mm-hmm. or or succeeding at the heist or whatever it is that you know would yeah. wrap the story. Yeah, changing um, the situation, resolving right. it. Yeah. The uh, there's there's quite a lot of games out there that are that and some of them are very popular that use like a point or chip system where mm. you you earn chips for doing things that hurt you or that complicate the game or you know provide some sort of uh, you know uh, uh, bonus to the you know or perk to like the the foe or the adversary or whatever. Uh, or the situation, whatever it is you're working against. Um, and then you can spend points to overcome um, in very specific way. Like you can do the cool thing by spending points. So you you have to balance off and on. And so you you might have, like that's a, a game, that that game style can be a little more easily, uh, you know, the GM can say like, well, here's, you know, the, it, the story can be anything. The story can be you're, you're trying to do, you know, here's your task, here's your, your, your long-term challenge for the story. Um, and everybody has to kind of get to the point of succeeding at that. But in order to make sure that you have a few chips to put toward those last couple challenges that are going to actually succeed for you, you have to go ahead and kind of eat it early on and, and you know, and, and introduce some complications and um, gain some of those chips. Cause, and you can, you can manipulate, uh, you know, as a designer too, you can manipulate how a game like that plays too, by like how easy it is or how difficult it is to earn chips, what the chips can be spent on, whether how many you start with in the first place. Um, maybe you start with none, you know, and you literally have to come out of the gate just like, oh, we got to fail and have all sorts of problems. And I got to have like an interpersonal issue that comes up and like all this stuff yeah. so that I have some chips so that I can do the thing down the road. Like I can, you know, successfully rappel down into the room with the lasers. <laughs> Rewarding failure, I think, is like the thing that you need to get over. Because I think our instinct as gamers is to want to be good. 
like to want to like be heroes, but rewarding a failure, rewarding like a like a painful situation and making that worthwhile will get people to do those things. Mm-hmm. It's called Five Alarm Apocalypse. I had to look it up. It's by Riverhouse <laughs> Games. I just wanted to give it a shout out. Um, I like I've I've referred to that the 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 you know failing a bunch in order to succeed. Um, I've referred to that in my games as the Indiana Jones rule, um, where everything goes wrong <laughs> all movie long. And then Indy finally, you know, has a few moments kind of usually sometimes interspersed, but usually much later where everything kind of comes together. Um, and there's a lot of movies and TV shows that do that. Um, but uh, when you get right down to it, like a point system, like where you're, you're earning the points and then spending the points is really just another way to get to the same place that dice get you because you're going to roll the dice and fail sometimes you're going to roll the dice and succeed sometimes but you get but when you're doing it with the points you just dis- you you get to decide mm-hmm. when you fail and what makes the most narratively interesting failure yeah like the um, spectrum right like you get rather to than determine have, that. Yeah. yeah rather than just like well i fail when when the dice say i fail and if i fail at a time that's really not good then you're, you're stuck with yeah. it. Um, <laughs> yeah. and 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 yeah, and, and it, that type of a game does, you know, the point chip type game does does allow you to skew the game towards success. But, you know, if that's what the game is about, the game is like, well, we're kind of expecting the group to succeed. This isn't a dungeon crawl that's going to murder everybody. This is like we're expecting the characters to kind of succeed. It's just a question. The journey is more important. How are they going to how are they going to succeed? Um, what are they going to do along the way that's interesting that helps to pay off that success? Um, something that I'm a big proponent of in when I write GM sections in my game books is to, you know, do the bad thing to the characters, you know, like have the things that are, have failure, make sure that there are failures, make sure the complications don't pull, you don't have to pull punches on complications. And as a player, when you're making those choices, you can do the same thing because it will make the success even more sweet. Like just succeeding all the way through is like, okay, well, you succeeded at the end, but you didn't really face any serious obstacles but if you really had to struggle at a, a few times then that win at the end is all the better for sure i think another tip is making sure to write a really robust guide for a gm if you're gonna make a game like that i know we've already talked about a little bit of it but like having really robust guidelines for the role play we, we talk so much about mechanics when we're designing games that we really leave aside the, the, the first two, the two thirds of the acronym, the RP in RPG. There's not a lot of role play guidelines in, in some books. Um, whereas you'll have like the, the huge meat of the, the game being all mechanics. So telling people straight up, like, yes, make the bad decision, do this when it's narratively, you know, resonant. Um, one of the things I really like about Powered by the Apocalypse books are their, like the moves for the, for the GMs that are in there that are completely diceless because the GM's never touching a dice, uh, never touching dice at all in a Powered by the Apocalypse game. They're only reacting and making moves against the players at certain moments. Uh, when the players aren't doing things. Uh, and having more of that in a game, I think um, that's been my experience playing these kinds of games uh, makes it a lot easier and more fun for everybody. Plus you're getting the game experience. You're you're helping them get to the game experience that you want them to get to. It, it can be a very big mind 
shift with respect to mindset. And I think uh, that that's why perhaps a lot of games are still, I guess, catching up, critically speaking, with creating these robust guides that you speak of. Because we got so used to like, okay, you're going to play a character. Uh, this is like, this is the god you worship. These are the things you do. This is your background. But also combat 50 pages later. Yeah. Right? Like that, that's that's <laughs> been the primary way that people learn these games. And we do not have the benefit of having a video game where once again you can click, fuck around and find out if you fall out the, off the cliff and you die, do it again, find another way. <laughs> right. Like it it you don't have that um, I wouldn't call it privilege. You don't have that cushion. Right. So, um, and it also really depends a lot on your player's background. Some people will just swim right into it, especially if they are uh, actors. I found I've had a I've had a wild time with theater friends um, when they were like, "Oh, so this is the new toy we're going to play with." Okay, (laughs) bring out all their stuff, right? And uh, fascinatingly, I've found that uh, esports folks have a great time. Uh, and, and like I, I have a huge crowd of, of esports uh, commentators, uh, competitors, and and organizers who got into role play, and they did not play D and D first; they played Blades because of me. And for them, it, it started with a huh, huh, "How do you do this?" right? And then after all of the shenanigans were passed, you could see their brains working because in their head they already had a visual map of the combat sphere. <laughs> so they were like, if I roll this and I test it, what happens? I see. And then they 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 move on to it. So like uh, the the if you're gonna write a guide, I feel um, make it true to your game because you you cannot anticipate what kind of players you're going to get. So that that's where you could put in the limitations of it. You could put in how you as a person envision that the role play experience can be. And you could also put little little reminders, like I saw um, in the game of one of the LATAM breakout uh, South American designers. I think it's called Cantrip. It's a powered by the Apocalypse game. Uh, wait, no, sorry, it's not a powered by Apocalypse game. It is more a belonging outside belonging game. And how how they did it was they constantly reminded people throughout that this is a collaborative exercise. This is also up to interpretation. It sounds vague. It's because you guys get to discuss it. Uh, and that that repeats each and every time. And some some people might think that that's a dumb idea, but like you're giving players a book. They will forget, especially if it is a system. And you're also presuming that people are going to read the book and that there is no play, there is no cheat sheet. Repetition when it comes to mechanics is always a whole lot better than throwing your players into the deep end of the pool and having an entire table waste an hour trying to figure out the cryptic language that the designer used just once yeah. on how you're supposed to do the thing. Right? <laughs> Yeah, it's it is. This is a little unrelated to our grand scheme of things, but I do find it very funny how much nitpicking about rules that exists online, like in the Pathfinder forums, <laughs> like Pathfinder, yeah. like oh, how how are you meant to interpret this? Like it's a Bible quote. Like like you're trying to like figure out what the writer of your religious text said. That seems so. <laughs> and and they, they have to is the thing because a lot of those communities grew up with an adversarial way of thinking. 
when it came to gameplay. The GM mm. is the enemy. The world is going to kill you. And, and if your character is killed, then you just lost six hours of character creation. Yeah. And you're going to have to do it all over again. So they will become rules lawyers. And it will become, at times, a very annoying, very most days, very white cishet male pissing contest where they're just going to end up barking at each other around the <laughs> table of like, but then he used the the, not an and or, right? <laughs> because look at the placement the of the comma. Yeah, yeah right. Like it, it ends up like that. Like I, again, if that's your lane, don't let me and Pam tell you that that's a bad way of playing, but it's certainly not fun for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just find that very, I, it's definitely like if you are making a game that has no randomizers, you are like on the opposite side of that that spectrum there for sure, because you are allowing so many more interpretations on the part of the GMs or the players or just the players. Again, I think a lot of GM-less games uh, work really well without randomizers because you're already in this kind of fluid state where you are- yeah. You're already yeah. agreeing that everyone yeah. is working together to a common goal and everyone is agreeing to, yeah. to do that. And they just have like a bunch of options, right? Three to four options. Um, sometimes it's good to rely on the what, why, when, how, who. Mm-hmm. That's more than enough for you. Uh, another line of questioning you possibly use is, how do you want this move? Like, how do you want this move to affect the world around you? Is success or failure even a variant that you should be considering in this move? What is the aesthetic of your game and how do you make it lean into it? Like I had this discussion with a couple of folks that were very, um, like they were new to PTBA design and they were like, how do you do this? So that, that, was, that was my rubric. I didn't even talk about dice. I was like, intent. What is your intent? What are you trying to say with this game? And therefore, in this specific case with that specific move, how are you speaking to what you're trying to say with this game? If you can locate that, if you can ruminate on it, word it, you've got your move. You're already fine. You can come up with a dice later. Another thing that occurs to me that if you're looking to, to design a game that provides um, a shorter game session, kind of tip, typical, typically a shorter game session, um, you know, you won't get bogged down with a whole bunch of dice rolling for an extended sequence if you play, if you, if you design a low dice or no dice kind of game. Um, and you know, there are people that appreciate that kind of a game. There's people that love, you know, crunching rules and rolling dice for five hours, but there's people that like, I don't have a lot of time. I, if I can sit down with some friends and, and play a, a satisfying mm-hmm. game in two hours, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, maybe that's, uh, you can, you can tailor the system and how you approach the game and what the game is about to, um, kind of hit that mark. Um, I mean, die laughing actually there's a fair bit of dice rolling, but it's not a lot at all. Um, but it's also, you know, and that was done um, done to kind of make the game play in two hours. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as we've been talking here, I've uh, I've jotted down two different game ideas. <laughs> oh, no, Craig. <laughs> Craig. Uh, that's three today. Uh, total. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a lot, but I'm in I'm in what I call a game designer retreat mode, where I'm deliberately not writing down any of the new ideas I get. I'm letting them stew, and I'm just absorbing other media because the 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 tragedy of a game designer, especially if you're a game designer who's a career freelancer, um, you don't really get to do much else if you're not careful. 
right? You're always on the grind. You're always reading other systems and immersing yourself in game design. But game design draws from many different areas. So I'm shelving all of my stuff and I'm just binge watching Netflix things. I'm on Crunchyroll. I'm back on FF14. And people are like, uh, so like uh, I had an interview recently where someone was like, what are you playing? And I said, like, honestly, I'm not playing anything. And that's the point. Uh, to not play. It's to watch, it's to read, it's to, to do other things, it's to sleep. That's the point. So that feeling the well. Yeah. So that way when I go into looking into other games or if I play other games, I'll end up a little fresher and it has helped immensely. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seventy-five percent of the ideas that I come up with never go beyond two sentences. So but that's I'm, fun, right? I'm it's not fun. overly worried. Yeah, like, well, and that becomes the thing too, because like you said, let them stew. Like, I'll just take the ideas and I'll throw yeah. them in a, in a big pile. And sometimes there's something that really, ooh, I gotta like outline this. I gotta write a page. I gotta, yeah, I've got an idea. I've gotta expand on. Sometimes it just literally goes in the bucket. And, and you're uh, like, okay, and I and great. I and I go back to the bucket every so often. I'm like, oh, there's that thing. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. and sometimes once in a while that actually becomes a game yeah <laughs> yeah I, i'm thinking about all the ways i would like like i because i've made a i made a game that had no dice before i've made a couple that don't have any mm-hmm. dice um and a lot of it ends up being like they're not like super sustainable like campaigns long you know kinds of mm-hmm. games they're usually meant to tell a specific kind of story um and a lot of that has come from me just jotting down ideas too uh <laughs> but uh yeah I, i'm glad that we we had this conversation I, i'm really thinking about ways that you can even combine a lot of this with um very mechanics heavy games like di- randomizer heavy games i should say because mechanics heavy doesn't necessarily mean randomizer that's true yeah and it doesn't well Pam, thank you for joining us yet again. I think like what is this four or five? I don't I don't know. <laughs> it's always fun. It's, like, it's she, always fun. Pam's been on the show for like like seventeen times, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. If people are tired of my of my voice, well, too bad. No You'll refunds. A lot more of me. <laughs> no refunds. I'm here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Pam, you're on a designer's retreat, but where can we find your stuff? Uh, I can find my stuff on itch under the dovetailer. The current stuff that I'm doing on, okay, divide my work, like Pam's weird things and then Pam's actual professional things. My actual (laughs) professional things right now in Navithem's end may get a print run under the company Exalted Funeral. So that may be happening next year. Please look out for it. Shout out to everybody who supported the the Our Shores Kickstarter. Without that Kickstarter, this game would not have happened. Uh, So Navithem's end print run, look out for it next year. Dagger Isle Supplement is chugga-chugging along, uh, (laughs) but it is not happening this month because me and the other designers on the team are either busy with life or busy with Big Bad Con 2022. Um, my, my weird stuff, uh, I have a game about hell breaking loose in the Philippines, up and coming. I'm still fiddling with my supernatural hunters and wager system because I'm, as I said earlier, I'm not happy with the crunch. I want to change it entirely and screw past Pam over, but it's going to be for a great return. Uh, um, and I will be making a funny Final Fantasy 14 game. So obviously I won't be able to make money off of it, but it's going to give joy to my heart. So <laughs> there's a lot of Pams. Yeah. Mean Pam, weird Pam, professional Pam, <laughs> past, past Pam. 
There's your next game, Pam. All of the Pams. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a Gemini. It's it's uh we, oh, we hey. dwell in the <laughs> right. We dwell in the in the space of like we wear many hats. They're all different. <laughs> well, uh, you can find me at at Joska on Twitter, or you can find my games at wannabegames.com, drive through RPG, itch.io, all under wannabe games. And you can find me. I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter, and uh, the Kickstarter for Code Warriors is still going on. Check that. Um, and you know all the other places. You've been listening to the other episodes, right? Um, Code Warriors is the place to go right now. Uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avil by Steph Sachs. Thank you, Steph Sachs, for licensing that under Creative Commons. Thank you to all of the trucks going by, setting up stuff for the Chicago Marathon, meaning that I know I'm going to have some background noise to eliminate from this one. Uh, <laughs> the marathon happens right on my street tomorrow. Yay. Oh, yay. Uh, <laughs> thank all of you for listening. And we'll see you back here next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.